0: call Lauren Santo Domingo a style icon is to vastly underestimate her. She is that, of course, but the former Vogue fashion editor and member of the Best Dressed List Hall of Fame is also a savvy businesswoman and oppression early tech adapter whose moda operandi, launched in 2010, brought exclusive luxury and fashion to the web and has raised more than $300 million in funding. She recognized before virtually anyone else that online retail could reach a highly sophisticated audience that wanted early access to fashion collections, exclusive trunk sales, and hard-to-find special items by both well-known brands and innovative young designers. The site now represents more than 1,000 designers and brands and ships items to more than 125 countries. The mother of two is also a fanatic about home, interiors, and entertaining, with a Paris apartment designed by Francois Coutreau, with a charming terrace by Madison Cox, a Southampton house she designed with architect Gil Schaefer, with gardens by Miranda Brooks, as well as her Manhattan home. Her love of interiors has led to the creation of Moda Domus, an exquisite array of custom-designed tabletop items, accessories, and linens. Plus, She's now a cherished Design Insider and will be highlighting pieces from her Moda Domus collection and other favorite cherished finds beginning May 13th. Welcome, Lauren.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for such a nice introduction.
0: Well, I'm so impressed. I mean, I remember you from the fashion closet at Vogue, our days together at Vogue, and you've come a long way since then. And I wanted to ask you about what gave you the confidence to go into the web? Because back in 2010, It's not that long ago, but it was eons ago in internet age. I mean, Amazon was still mostly selling books. I know that the beauty brands were reluctant to do anything online, and yet you just went for it. So what was your thinking behind going on the web and launching Mode Operand?
1: I think it was not thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Had I really thought about it, maybe I would have done something else. I did it somewhat on a lark, although I knew that it would turn into something. And Of course, I had big aspirations. I really didn't understand quite what I was getting myself into, but I just really was drawn by the idea of connecting people to fashion. Like when I was in the Vogue closet, I understood that I had a really special access to fashion, to designers, to showrooms, to great product. And then as I would go out and about about my life with people that weren't in fashion, there was a huge disconnect. And I realized how lucky I was, I am, to be in that world. And it's my instinct just in general, whether it's like a dermatologist or a great handbag or the beautiful website that sells vintage products i like to share things for me nothing is good until it's shared so it really just sparked from that if i have beautiful clothing and designers and i want to connect it with the you know most broad array of women possible obviously we're doing it online but that was really what drove me and what continues to drive me is just that impetus to share things that i think are good and to connect women with things that I think they'll enjoy.
0: So would you think it was like equal parts They were great stuff out there that was being made and and designed that wasn't being seen, or was it that there were more women who were frustrated that they couldn't shop and find things, or was it equal?
1: So what I did, essentially, is the clothing would go down the runway during Fashion Week, and the only people that were allowed in those shows, it was editors and buyers. And it was very much a closed industry and a closed event. And right around the time I launched was the beginning of blogs and street style. So this fashion world or the rest of the world, I should say, was becoming much more aware of Fashion Week and understood what was happening in cities with social media, and people really took an interest. And it was more than that in that the designers also wanted to connect their clothing, their collection with women. And there used to be in those shows, there would always be in the front row a bunch of like a Nan Kempner, a Annette de Renta, right. Dita Blair.
0: The social ladies.
1: Exactly, they would sit in the front row and they were allowed to make their personal order right from the show. That stopped at some point. And I think the designers really missed that. They, they wanted to be able to connect directly with the customer, that's who they're designing for. So it was really both. And I was hearing from designers that they missed that. They missed women sitting in the front row and engaging, and they they missed that personal element in this very commercial environment. And at the beginning, did you have a
0: hard time getting the concept across? Because it was perceived at the time that the web was for mass, you know, Amazon, that kind of thing, things that were mass produced, you know, and I'm one of those people early on who thought, oh, No one's ever going to buy a sofa or a chair online that they couldn't sit in. And that's probably why I don't have $300 million in funding. (laughs) But, you know, and I know like a a $4,000 dress, are people going to buy that without seeing it, trying it on? So was it a hard sell, mode operandi,
1: the idea? Not really. I mean, the designers definitely jumped on it. I think explaining to women that weren't as fluent with fashion, understanding that these clothes that go down the runway actually aren't going to be even produced for four months. So understanding... 40%
0: 40% of them probably were not be produced at all.
1: Exactly. It's about 10% of those items that just never get produced. So the designers were delighted to do it. The customers needed a little handholding. And, you know, for me, it didn't, I, I shop. Everywhere, right? Whether I'm on Madison Avenue or Fifth Avenue, if I go to a museum, I stop in a gift shop usually on the way in and on the <laughs> way out. So for me, shopping online, it didn't seem that foreign, and buying large items online didn't seem that foreign
0: to me. Mm-hmm. And what about investors? Did they, was it a hard sell for investors?
1: You know, it's funny. Usually I would meet with the investors and we would have it sort of scratch their head and say, wait, so they're not getting it right away. They have to wait for it. They have to put a deposit. It, it, it didn't seem to make any sense. And without fail, they would call back the next day and say, actually, I spoke to my wife or I spoke <laughs> to my daughter and they loved the idea. Can we set up a second meeting? And it was always the women in their life that would, you, you know, of bring, no. Yes, bring it around. And and now, listen, 10 years later, they're not having to ask their wife. They're, you know, there are women in those rooms making these decisions. A lot has changed in 10 years, especially Thank in God. that way. Mm-hmm. So that makes it easier for me, too.
0: Right. And the other thing that fascinated me about mode operandi was how service-oriented it was. Like, you were talking about exclusivity. But, you know, pre-orders, things that aren't available— and a lot of people think is going online. You click a few but things, it's shipped to you in a box. But you approach it very differently. So how did that evolve? This idea of like getting custom things, you know, you see right on there, oh, there's only one left. This is available. That's available. Pre-order, put a deposit down. Now, that really is unheard of, I think, on practically every other site.
1: So at the time, you know, I think that for me, at least, I think what constituted good service, say you were in a brick and mortar, a good service meant that someone was, you know, maybe if you wanted information, they could tell you, they could bring things to your dressing room, right, that there was all sorts of ways that make your shopping experience better, and I figured online, it's actually much easier to do all of these things. You can actually just print what's on the label. You don't have to go from floor to floor if you want to. You know, the shoes are on one floor and the the dresses are up top. Everything is right there. So for me, the idea quickly as we're sort of designing the experience, I've never been able to go back to brick and mortar. It feels clunky and slow. And I had very particular, you know, I had a certain level of expertise expectation for shopping. And so designing the Moda experience and to this day, what I'm trying to do is just create the perfect shopping experience with the best product and, and the most engaging ways to interact with it and to learn about designers. And when I was young, I grew up in Connecticut and I would take Metro North into the city. And for me, Barney's was a real education in new designers. That's where I learned about designers. I learned about fashion RIP Barneys, but that's where I really learned. And I really wanted to to be able to provide women, young women, older women with that same experience of interacting with, with new designers. And then again, for the designers who I love and support to be able to give them a new audience. And if you think about it, you know, for these young designers, even looking back in retrospect, it was such a big deal to be on that shop floor. But really, what were they getting? They were getting a rail with 10 garments hanging from it. If you're lucky, there would be a right. shop assistant who knew something about them. But even then, you know, which I had sort of idealized this discovery process and Barney's. When I look back, I'm like, I wasn't really getting what I needed. I wasn't understanding the full breadth of the designer or what their whole collection their vision, meant or right. their vision exactly. So while my goal was to replicate, I, I feel like I've improved upon this sense of discovery. And my background in Vogue also was was young designer, American designers, emerging designers. So spotting new talent, nurturing new talent was always something that was drilled into me. So I did get quite an education in in Vogue in that, which has been helpful in discovering new designers and choosing what designers we're putting on the site. It comes very naturally to me at this point.
0: And that's one of the things that really impresses me about the site is how many young designers that I'm not familiar with. But that, of course, raises another issue because obviously by being on Moda, you're putting your imprimatur on it. You like it. But as we all know, the days since you worked at Vogue, when the fashion magazines and fashion editors and Anna Winter of course, primary among them, were huge influencers, a term that didn't even exist back then. But who are the influencers now? How do you think that's changed and how do you decide? Like you could feature an unknown designer on the site and show some of their product, but how do you get women excited about that?
1: Well, I think what's happened is women have changed and it used to be that we needed fashion editors or fashion magazines to tell us what to wear what was in fashion? What was in season? With all Which the,
0: hemline level you were supposed to have? That was the famous me- measure of everything, including the stock
1: market. Of course. <laughs> and But the idea is that now women have so much information. I think they're allowed to, people are allowed to be super feminine one day and minimal the next day. You can really express yourself. No one is telling anyone who to be or what to wear. We definitely do a lot of handholding. We've got a great stylist network who can help you with size or fit or trends or, you know, just putting things in your basket. But on the whole, we really believe that women are able to choose for themselves if given the right guidance. Right.
0: right. And you do have an editorial approach on the, Absol- on the yeah. side as well, yeah. you know, and yeah. I'm sure that's, kind of fun for you. And, I can't and help but
1: team. edit. I can't help but right. edit. No matter right. what and I see, I'm edit it it. and you're
0: in certain yeah. ways and you have trends and you have like romantic versus whatever. So I think that probably helps as well. So you must have, I would imagine, you must be approached by dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of designers who want to be on this site. You know, how do you keep your eyes open to new talent, but also, as you were saying, edit and knowing who to say yes to, who to say no to, how do you curate?
1: So I think it's that thing that you just know right? You can immediately look at a designer and say, that's Moda. And you just know. And then, of course, there's other decisions that have to factor in, right? You have to know that the designer can actually say this one top we sell, three, you know, we have 3,000 pre-orders. We need to know that that designer can produce. We need <laughs> to know. 3, yeah, I want to know who's <laughs> not, running not their... <laughs> yeah, we, we. I need to know who's running their business, right? And to know that this will be a great partner for us long-term, that if we're going to take the time to really, you know, give this designer a platform that that they have the back of house to to sustain. And then I also, I want to know that the designer has creative longevity, that there's a big runway in front of them, that they will be able to continue to grow as a designer and to continue to develop their point of view. I think that's really important. And then also sometimes there isn't a big runway in front of them. Maybe it's just one hit bag, right? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. it. And that's right. fine too.
0: If you seize that moment.
1: Right. And then just right. knowing, you know, and hopefully maybe helping them to expand their their point of view or different categories within their business. And, you know, I think is something that we really think about.
0: Right. When you're curating your array for this site. Is there a proportional sense? Like you want so many big name known designers like Bottega Veneta or whatever versus younger designers. Do you feel it's important to have a proportional mix or is it just about you love this season on X design and you didn't like maybe the next season? How do you work that out so that you feel that you're still at the forefront, but you don't want to become just another shop that's selling Gucci, for example.
1: Yeah. So that's called our brand matrix, and it's something that we uh, okay. actually, we we think about quite a bit. We really want to be differentiated. We want to be able to carry new designers that you can't get everywhere else. And fashion is funny, right? The small designers really want to be with the big designers, right? Mm-hmm. But then the big designers also want to be with the young designers because they're right. cool.
0: Right, everybody wants to be hip. Everyone, you know? right? Got to be in with the cool kids.
1: It goes both ways and you really need to keep that list tight and and it needs to be considered. So it's something that we do think about and make sure that we're balancing that we're speaking to lots of different women and different lifestyles and different sizes and different climates. Right? We're taking all of that into account. Of course, we definitely skew towards Occasion dressing, right? Uh, evening well, gowns, you know. cocktail dresses. And occasions are coming back. Yes, they, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we definitely skew more towards mm-hmm. the fun side of life. Right, right. You weren't necessarily
0: going to go on to Moda to get a T-shirt. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, and there are plenty of outlets to get there's nice T-shirts. A lot.
1: There's a lot. We try to have a bit more fun and and to really speak to those more. And that's just naturally what interests me is that type of lifestyle and dressing a woman for that lifestyle is is what excites me.
0: And I think that's it comes across when you visit the site. It seems very authentic don't have to try too hard. You know that life. You understand. Yeah. God knows how you've been to a number of parties. more. <laughs>
1: You know, I still love even, you know, whether it's a customer or even someone in in my DMs, I still love on a mass scale, a mode of connecting women with designers. I, I still love to help the individual woman. I've got a dress. I'm meeting my future in-laws for the first time. I'm going to be at a wedding and see my ex-boyfriend. What am I going to wear? <laughs> whatever it is. I I, well, still, I don't know what
0: bag to bring with right. this dress. Whatever. A lot of I that. Mean, a lot of that. Right. But that's that service element that I was talking about. I think that's people respond to that. Yeah. Every, we all have our insecurities, no matter how sophisticated or rich or knowledgeable you are. We all have our insecurities. So I think if somebody can talk to that, it, I think you build an incredible amount of trust.
1: Yeah. And I, I think within the organization, we are a group of, you know, men and women that share the same passion for for the fashion, for the clothing, for the lifestyle, for this customer. And I think it just transcends that, you know, we're never boring.
0: Hi everybody and thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the Cherish podcast. My name is Anna Brockway and I am the co-founder and president of Cherish. Professional designers are invited to join the Cherish Trade program to access special benefits like net pricing and a special trade-only customer service hotline. We're also introducing a loyalty program where designers earn $75 in cash for every $5,000 they spend on Cherish. We do hope you'll join us. And in order to do so, please visit cherish.com backslash trade. That's spelled C H A I R I S H dot com backslash trade. And now back to the show. Now, I want to talk to you about home because, of course, a lot of our listeners are interested in home. and I wanted to find out, when did you start Mododomus and how it evolved? You have an incredible array of beautiful things. I mean, I think looking through them, I think they're as beautiful as any homeware line by any designer or whatever. And you do represent some other brands as well, right. high-end brands and artisans like Francis Palmer, my friend, and some real talents. But how do you develop your own line? How did you go about that and why?
1: So, the first product that we did was I had found I am a a voracious flea market, thrift shop, antique shop. That's why I love Cherish so much. I just love sort of unique finds, especially on my table, sometimes for clothing too, like a fun belt or a silly old beaded bag. I do like that for fashion too, but especially for for home. And I had found these ceramic potato bowls and in fashion week in paris there's a restaurant called caviar caspia Mm -hmm. and it's sort of the cafeteria of the fashion world i suppose Mm -hmm. and it's it's obligatory to go to caviar caspia and instagram your caviar potato it's just a Mm -hmm. double or triple baked potato with caviar on top that's it That's all it takes. If you have enough
0: caviar, that's all you need.
1: That's it. So I found some of these caviar potato bowls, ceramic ones, and I'd slowly collected them over time. I had 24 or so, and I had a dinner in Paris and I did it at my house and I served these caviar potatoes in the ceramics. And people sort of lost their mind and wait, it's ceramic. (laughs) This is incredible. Or it was. And immediately the next day, when people sort of came to, they were like, okay, how do I get the caviar potatoes? So we started making them. We started producing them. We have a great artisan in Italy that spent time really getting it right. And then it sort of grew from there. How do you
0: find the artisans, the craftsmen? I mean, you have beautiful blown glass. You have ceramics. You have linens. Did you reach out to people who already did, you know, those kind of things? And how did you find
1: their vendors, typically, that I had already worked with myself, whether it was Los Encajeros, who had been doing linens for my table and my house for many years. So
0: you already knew a lot yeah,
1: of Yeah, I, I spent mm-hmm. summers in Venice every summer. So a lot of the glassmakers I knew, and I would always leave Venice with a Dozen or so new glasses, and doesn't would, everybody. <laughs> and I, I have a nice collection at this point. And when people would come to my house, and without fail. I entertain a lot. And people would ask me, well, where can I get this? Where can I get that? And it just seemed to be absolutely outrageous that I go to great lengths to connect women with clothing, yet suddenly with incredible glassware or linens, it became very clear to me that I want to connect people with these artisans, with this beautiful glass or linens, and it's the same impulse. And it's the same even with women having dinner parties. It's the same. I want to help women just really express themselves, be creative, feel confident, have the best, whether it's the best pieces in your closet or pieces in your butler's pantry that you are able to create beautiful right. moments in, in design.
0: Mm-hmm. Make them different.
1: Yeah. And also, I think this is not to
0: be minimized. You are supporting these craftsmen in, in Italy and other places. Because there's not, a, you know, in a mass-produced age, in a mass-market age, the individual craftsman is often struggling. And I think that's a great thing that you're doing. Now, are you thinking of expanding the home array? Because, as we know, during the pandemic, uh-huh. home has done surprisingly well. I mean, I know all the designers at the beginning were freaked out. And they've done surprisingly well. And now there's almost shortages. Uh-huh. I mean, there are shortages and delays in getting stuff. So I think home has, with people spending more time there, has benefited in a way So is that something you think Moda will expand, Moda Domus? I mean, I know now you're going to be selling some of the things on Cherish, Mm -hmm. and we're going to be editing stuff for Cherish. So how has the demand been through the pandemic, and do you see it increasing?
1: Well, through the pandemic, I mean, I think we were all nesting. And so, yeah, our our home, we really rolled out one of our first lines right before the pandemic. So, you know, sometimes being lucky is better than being smart. So, we were really able to to we were we were lucky because people certainly yeah. were not buying cocktail no. dresses or evening no. gowns or right, sparkly right. shoes, you can be sure. So, we were really lucky to have that business really up and running. I definitely think we'll be continue to expand. We do collaborations all the time. I think there's always about two or three table settings that we're working on at a time and we roll them out. Sometimes it's a it's with the designer. Oftentimes we work with the designer. Perhaps they are in the mountains of Switzerland or in the countryside of Paris or in Bilbao, Spain. And while they have incredible craftsmanship, incredible quality, perhaps they are not as connected with this woman and understand what her certain lifestyles are. So we do, we know. So we'll help create collections, capsule collections, collaborations. So we're always rolling something out. We have a great Lily of the Valley set that we're doing for Mother's Day, which is Beautiful. Another sort of collaboration that we're doing celebrating uh, Save Venice, which is a cultural charity supporting restorations in in Venice. So it's the 50th anniversary of Save Venice. I think it's the 1600th birthday of Venice, something like that. So we're doing a nice collection with Venetian glass and linens that were inspired by the beautiful mosaic floors at the Academia and that will be coming out for holiday. So we're always up to something. And how big is your team that works on the home lines? We're pretty small. We're pretty. We're pretty nimble. We definitely keep it tight. And but we're small and mighty.
0: Okay. Okay. That's why. Well, probably that's why it seems so authentic. Yeah. As well, you have a very clear vision and a. I don't want to say taste level, but a certain aspect that you know is going to be a certain elegance. But it's very colorful as well. And is that something that you think about? In your own
1: homes, too? I grew up down the street from Martha Stewart. So oh. I, you know...
0: <laughs> that was a level that I had to rise yeah. to. Yeah. So, that so was a challenge.
1: I felt like from a young age, I was sort of always around that, around entertaining and this idea of homemaking. To me, it always felt very old-fashioned. Being a, a homemaker... Was not something that I aspired to at all. And I was, I somewhat rejected it. And I suppose, and then I have a, my mother-in-law is a supremely, supremely elegant woman. And and I think I learned from her that it is not, that I think setting the table and entertaining is not an extension of being someone's wife. It can be your own thing and you, it can be an expression of your own taste and point of view, and that you can do it for yourself as much as for, you know, right. it's not necessarily... And it can be fun. It can be fun. It can be fun, yeah. And so I I think I learned from her to just enjoy it and, and not put so much baggage with it. And then she just has incredible, incredible taste. And so I think sitting with her quite a few meals over the years, I think it helped train my eye. She'd been collecting glassware and silver and porcelain and linen so anything that I'm seeing on her table is is just the best of the best so I think that definitely trained my eye I also have a lot of the the vendors were from her rolodex and like you said a Go lot the of best. the best very old world artisans that you're absolutely right you know needed to have this sort of burst of youthful attention and i think that's what i definitely you know while we'll do beach things and poolside and lots of garden that sort of supremely chic sophisticated european point of view is really my is really what i gravitate towards
0: it's ironic. You didn't want to become a homemaker, now you're a several homemaker. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it was just unpacking all that unnecessary baggage from right. From, right. from. We all from it. rebel in
0: our youth, yeah. you know. Yeah, and so. now
1: I, I really enjoy it, and I don't think of it as you know. I'm not entertaining my husband's work colleagues, and I also think there was a lot of pressure around rules and etiquette and a lot that was sort of made me feel nervous that I would get something wrong. And I realized that the only people that know that the wine glass should be in this place or that place, anyone who knows that and judges you for it is jerk. So who cares? If somebody Just don't, you don't want don't at your invite dinner table. Them. Right. Don't invite exactly. them. I still exactly. to this day I'm always confused between, you know, the the white the white right or the, the, wide, or, the, or the red. red. I mean, red I'll or... do an Instagram and someone will email and will direct message me and say, you know, oh the knife point should be turned in. I'm like I'll oh, get over it. I know you're not
0: invited and I don't care what you think. You know, I mean, because I still, to this day, especially in New York City, I think the highest compliment you can pay to somebody is to invite them into your home mm-hmm. because it's been, until the pandemic, it was such a restaurant city, right. and which is great. We love going to restaurants, but I think inviting someone into your home and as long as you have a you went some thought and preparation into it, I agree. It's just a matter that the water glass goes to the right or the left of the wine glass. As long as there is there and you can sit down and have fun, that's what matters. Uh, and
1: also, I think a lot of those rules become antiquated really quickly. For example, I remember when I moved to New York, I was sitting at a Ladies Who Lunch Lunch, and everyone was gasping about there was a, a young woman who was featured in Vogue magazine, her house, and I guess on her dining table, she had colored candles. And everyone was (laughs) scandalized that she had these colored candles. And I just arrived in New York and I'm sitting at this lunch. I'm like, okay, note to self, never use colored candles. That is very bad. And
0: I would have thought, note to self, maybe I came to the wrong city. (laughs) Right, exactly.
1: Now, fast forward, you know, 20 years ago, I only want colored candles. I don't care if they are or were or will be again not correct. I I think they're fun.
0: And it's so funny, the idea, the rules that people set for themselves or whatever. It's very funny. So I want to ask you, now that the pandemic, thank God, Knockwood, pray tell, amen, is coming to an end, and we all know that fashion suffered hugely, and people work in a different way. They've been mostly working from home. How do you see fashion regaining its ground? Do you think it will regain its ground? Do you think people will still want to dress up? So in terms of dressing
1: up, I think Absolutely. I think people are really going to make an effort. I, yeah, I definitely am, am feeling also in the beginning of the pandemic, I thought we were going to come out in much more strict and utilitarian and having just come through this very trying time. And, you know, I'm seeing on, on Moda, it's lots of minis and crystals and very glitzy, really fun glamorous looks, which is very interesting. And I think in terms of fashion, you know, I mean, I think it's, there's probably parallels between all our lives, right? We were all on this sort of, this rut in a routine doing the same thing and you can't really jump off. So I think with fashion, it was a very big hamster wheel with runway shows and presentations and collections and capsule collections. It was never ending. As a fashion editor... It was like 16
0: collections a year, these poor designers. and It's
1: not fashion week, it's fashion month, and it's not two seasons a year. There's four, plus couture and pre-collections. And so it's really never ending. And and to be honest, when we switched to work from home, you realize that... You know, in the fashion world, we've been working from home for, a. Re- we've been working remotely for a really long time, being traveling so much on the road, being on location, on photo shoots and in the studio. So being out of office wasn't such a stretch, to be honest. But I do think that designers need to be out in the world with their customer, experiencing life being inspired. So I think the first chance that they get, I think we're going to see a lot of creativity, a lot of excitement. They'll be approaching the world, you know, with the same sense of adventure and curiosity of what's next. And I think it'll be exciting to see what they imagine us wearing in the seasons to come.
0: Now, in terms of inspiration, what are you looking at now, either in terms of fashion or home, that you are getting excited about, either from the past that you think is ready to come back or a talent that you're watching carefully? Are there any trends, any color palette, any materials that you're excited about? I mean, I look at everything. I am a... (laughs) I know, you're voracious. I am a
1: consumer of images. And I have a good photo recall. I think it was from my years of being an editor of Grace Connington says, "Okay, I need helmet Lang's look number 15. I I had to know what look 15 was. And at some point, I could even tell you what model was wearing it on the runway. I got pretty pretty good. Wow, that's
0: impressive. So
1: I look at everything. I'd right now, you asked me what material. I'm really into linen right now, linen into linen suiting. Sort of, I actually found a photo of some talented Mr. Ripley era Americans in Venice touring around on their grand tour and the young men were wearing double-breasted linen three-piece suits.
0: It oh, it's funny we just re-watched Death in Venice.
1: Okay, okay, great. With a nice bowder and beautiful buttons, and there is something that really appealed to me, and so I'm definitely looking forward to to that. I think the row did some beautiful linen suiting for spring of last year, and so I think we're we're just moving into we'll see more of that.
0: Yeah. So, and are there periods that you return to again and again for inspiration, touchstones? You
1: know, probably 90s for me is sort of what I, listen, I graduated in high school in 94 and college in 98. So I don't think I'll ever completely undo that. But yeah, so I'm definitely looking, I think 90s is is sort of my my go-to always.
0: Great. And in terms of like, Objects and things for Motodomas, are you thinking of expanding the range beyond the tabletop and accessories? Do you think it would ever go into doing furniture pieces?
1: We do lamps and cushions mm-hmm. and blankets and, cushions, yes. and framed edition photographs, lots of books and gifts and a little bit of everything. And and yeah, I, I could imagine, you know, doing some furniture. There's some great Design out there in general. So, which I'm obviously I, I really gravitate to design. I used to really only like sort of you know modern or antique. I find myself now interested in contemporary makers, contemporary furniture designers, contemporary design that maybe ten years ago I I wouldn't tolerate. Now I find myself there's just and also I think it's easier to find these designers, especially through Instagram right. and having an extended Instagram. network. Mm-hmm.
0: It's been a great democratizer yeah, and, and source of knowledge, yeah. you so know. I, I
1: think <laughs> again, sharing these things that I find with women. And you know, there's always someone I know who's doing up their house, and it's the same impulse to connect women with things that they'll enjoy. And so, yes, I can imagine that design and furniture would would just be an extension of that and and try to really serve her entire lifestyle, I suppose.
0: Uh, What about yourself? Have you given any thought to either getting a new home or redoing one of your homes. I mean, they're so beautiful and has been much photographed. I have some friends who are serial renovators.
1: I wish. I mean, every time I'll <laughs> go somewhere and I'll see something absolutely incredible and I'm just, I'm full. I, you know, there's no more room. Everything is... I was going to say, it's
0: no, you have a pretty full place Yeah, as I'm pretty, it is, I'm, you pr- know? I'm
1: full. I wish there was more real estate in my life. Sadly, I don't think there is. I'm just going to have to swap things in and out, I suppose. Or wait for my kids to be grown and I can do their houses, but no, or until then I'll do my, yes, that's, that's probably a good way to channel my energy is I'll focus on, I'll do moda, moda design. Great.
0: Terrific. What we're all waiting for. Well, Lauren, this has been so much fun. And I think the 13th, you will be a Cherish Insider Mm -hmm. and you're going to be curating things for the Cherish site and also a lot. Yeah, which is great. And some of the beautiful Motodomus pieces are going to go on the site as well.
1: I had a hard time because there were so many things that I added that I secretly want for myself.
0: <laughs> That's the problem. And I, I had being to be
1: a- very generous right. and leave them.
0: Can you give them up to somebody else. In
1: the curation and not take everything for myself. So it was definitely a, an exercise in generosity because most of the things in there I really loved. It was so fun to go through and so many different styles and decades. And I missed going to the thrift shops and the antique fairs. And so I spent a lot of time on the internet looking for all of those fun, exciting things. So it was fun to do.
0: And I think a lot of interior designers actually go into the field because they'd like yeah. imagine but spending other people's money and buying things absolutely. even if <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> it's top for themselves. Yeah. It's a secret of the design. A hundred percent. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. Thank it's you. A wonderful guest. I have really enjoyed this. And here's to your continued success with Moda Operandi. And also, so great that you're part of the Cherish family now. And thank you to all of you for listening to the Cherish podcast. You've been listening to the Cherish podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague, or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word, and we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hanger Studios in New York. Until next time.